Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. We're here at the National Planning Conference in New Orleans. Our guest today is local planning celebrity Bob Becker, FAICP. Bob is the CEO of City Park and an adjunct professor at the University of New Orleans. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about City Park. It's 1,300 acres in the city of New Orleans, and and you're in charge of making it all happen. Yeah, 1,300 acres is uh, almost twice the size of Central Park. Uh, And we are are the largest regional park in the state of Louisiana. With the most visitation, we get nearly 15 million visits a year uh, to our park. And I I came to City Park uh, in 2001 to kind of help them revitalize the the park and chart a a direction forward for the park. So that means you were there at the time of Hurricane Katrina. And I think I read you had had a master plan process underway or had just completed. Tell us what was happening then in 2005. Well, we had just finished a a new master plan for for City Park in March of of 2005. It was the first master plan done for the park in about 25 years. And it charted a course for the future, renovations, new new facilities uh, that we wanted to do. And then uh, on August 29th, uh, Hurricane Katrina hit. And the park is uh, very close to places where the levees breached. So the park was essentially annihilated. We had eight feet of water in the park uh, for almost a month. It was the last major facility to be pumped out by the, by the, by the Corps of Engineers. And uh, so as a result, every building was damaged. We lost all our equipment, uh, lost 2,000 trees in, in the process. Uh, but what was more devastating to that is City Park is a park that is funded 90% by the activities that occur in the park. We don't get very much public support and so we quickly ran out of money because all of our facilities were damaged and, and destroyed. So f- from a, uh, you know, a staff of uh, several hundred, we went down to a staff of 23 overnight. But uh, the plan provided the framework and um, the direction for us to rebuild. So while uh, there was offers of assistance of all kinds from around, around the country, Many entities in the, in the city had no plan, really, about where they were going. And so we got a lot of assistance and aid from philanthropic organizations and high net worth people and corporate philanthropy who had gone to other entities in the city offering help. But uh, because those entities had no way forward, had no plan forward, they ended up coming to us. And because we had a plan, recently adopted plan, of what we wanted to do in the park, uh, and because it covered many things from environmental uh, uh, issues to sports, uh, sports and athletics, um, we, we we got a lot of funding from uh, from those entities because we had the plan. That is a secret power of the plan that I counsel municipalities on. It can attract funding, so I'm glad to hear in this way it really made a difference. Yeah, it was it made the fundamental difference uh, for us um, because when you know when corporate philanthropy or other kinds of philanthropy come. They want a clear 
uh, understanding of how you're going to use their money. What are you going to use it for? How does it match their mission? What does it do for you? What does it do for the populations that um, that you serve? And uh, our, our plan covered, uh, I think, 10 or 11 different uh, subject areas for a, a park our size. So there was, there was something that appealed uh, to everyone. That planning process and the resulting efforts um, received a 2010 National Planning Award from the American Planning Association for a hard-won victory. Tell me about uh, winning that award. Well, uh, we were five years out from uh, Katrina, and uh, we had made a lot of progress. We had done a lot of things, recovered a lot of, uh, of our facilities, but it was it was hard. It was extremely difficult because again we didn't we didn't get any money from the city or state from an operating perspective. So trying to uh, redevelop our facilities to generate revenue so that we could do things that would uh, generate other revenue was uh, was very difficult. And I, you know I think APA recognized uh, the, the fact that you don't recover from uh, a catastrophic disaster quickly. It's, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. But we had made a really good start at it. And um, so, so the award was, uh, for us uh, uh, here in New Orleans, it was uh, a recognition that we uh, were doing the right thing. We, uh, we had the right plan. We had the right initiatives. We, uh, we were making great progress. We were providing services to the citizens of our region. Um, and it was, it was sort of a, uh, an affirmation, you know, that um, what, what we were doing made sense and an affirmation that the heart of it all was this plan that we had adopted uh, before the storm hit. Um, because it's very, once, once a storm hits or disaster hits you, it's really hard to develop the plan after that occurs. And it's much better to have something before that that guides you. And I think APA recognized that and that's why we got the award. So tell me what it was like once people uh, started coming back to the park, once you were at a point where you could really invite the public back. Well, when we got back, when I got back to the park, uh, which was about uh, five days later, I had evacuated, like most of the city, I had evacuated to Dallas and then got back in, into the park after we received a, uh, an admittance pass, because you had to have a pass to get into the city to get past the National Guard and the 82nd Airborne and the other people that were here protecting the city, um, you know, the park was totally devastated. I mean, we could not walk into the park, uh, get into the park with a vehicle. We had to walk into the park because there were trees and debris and overturned cars and equipment. And, and um, because we have an art museum in our park that has a lot of very expensive art in it, um, the National Guard had tried to block off entrances to, to the park to protect uh, the art with bob wire and uh, and that's so it took us, uh, you know, a fair amount of time to claw our way through that to get back into the heart of the park just to see how bad it really was. And, uh, and it was uh, very bad. Um, but, you know, you have to plant a flag and you have to start. So uh, we began in one part of our park, which was our botanical garden. We began to clean it up. Um, the National Guard helped. We had help from the Oregon National Guard unit that was stationed in the city that came to help us and uh, cleaned up the garden and cleaned up some of the facilities that we used to host events in it. And from there, you know, you move to the tennis courts, you clean off of the debris of the tennis courts, you string a rope across for, for a net because you, you don't have any nets, and people begin to come out. You know, they begin to come into the city and they begin to come out and as people went to their businesses or their homes or whatever and found the devastation that they had, 
they were looking for some outlet, you know, some way. So there's some normality. And um, as we began to get things going, they began to come and say, I'll play tennis. I'll play for free. You know, I'll I'll just hit the ball. You know, you don't have to do anything. I'll I'll put up a rope or I'll bring my uh, power lawnmower and I'll cut the grass in this part of the park. And so you don't have to do it, which was very good since we had no lawnmowers to cut any grass. Um, so people began to come back in that in, in, in that way. And we have a, a, a very a funny story at our d- golf driving range. We have a, a, had a golf course complex and a golf driving range. And we thought uh, when we got back, well, this could be a way to generate some money. If we could get the driving range back up, people would come and play. So we went out there. And, of course, it was totally devastated. All mats were gone. Everything was gone. Golf clubs, everything, everything was gone. But we... Uh, we had took our remaining 23 people and we walked out onto the driving range and we pulled golf balls out of the mud that um, that existed and we brought them back to the building that was flooded and uh, we had water and so we cleaned off all the golf balls and put them in in uh, buckets then we found pads and stuff that were floating and we brought them back and so we put out a sign on the driving range we said we're open and uh, ten dollars to hit a bucket of balls and we thought you know, nobody's suddenly people showed up from every everywhere they just drove drove in drove up you know you're open you're open you're open and um yeah we're yeah we're open do you have any golf clubs no no we don't have any golf clubs well that's okay just stay open i'm gonna go get some golf clubs and uh, so we had a whole ton of people come and we were sitting outside under a tent with this sign you know we're open ten dollars and people came and they started to hit golf balls left and right out there and money was coming in and we thought that we were brilliant we thought we were brilliant managers uh at that time and um until we ran out of golf balls again they were all they were all hit out in the field and so we ran out in the field with a big bullhorn that my operations director had and we said you have to you have to stop hitting and we don't have any way to pick up these golf balls because our machines are all broken so you have to go out there and collect your own golf balls and bring them back uh for the next group group of people and it's it's and they did and and that's that's how almost everything happened in the in, in the park after after the hurricane you you fix some part of it people come they enjoy it they spread the word they want to help you in some in some form or fashion and uh from there um we were able to open things we were able to generate some revenue uh we went to the state uh told them that they had to help us or we would we would have to abandon the park and walk away and so they didn't want a big giant mud hole in the middle of the, trying to recover the city uh so the state came through and they helped and uh and slowly but surely we recovered wow that's quite the story probably symbolic about what was happening all around the city post katrina yeah i i think so people would come back and try to figure out how to rescue their home or their business or wherever they were and and again we we felt like we were playing an extremely important role um, because you can't, you can't go to work, try to recover your business or gut your house and try to recover your house and not have any outlet, you know, no outlet at all to release the frustration or whatever you have. And we were that outlet. In fact, we were in trailers for five years uh, while trying to rebuild an, our administration building. And one day I'm in a trailer and a volunteer that we had was at the front of the trailer taking phone calls and all that. I was in the back, and she came to the back, and she said, Bob, you got to go to the front of this trailer. I have a woman here. I can't deal with it. you got to go. 
So I go up to the front of the trailer, and it's a young woman, and she said, I want to have the birthday party for my uh, three-year-old in the park. And I said, well, ma'am, we, we, have, we don't have anything. We have, we have nothing. Do, you know, we, we have no facilities. You know, we, we, we can't really support a birthday, birthday party. And uh, she said, um, my house is gutted. I can't have anybody to the house. I have to have a place. You're going to have a birthday party for my daughter. Said yes, I am. So <laughs> we got our, our people out there. We cleaned up a you know a, a space uh, in the park for her to come. We found a picnic table that had floated somewhere and brought it back. And and she came into the park and she was, you know, she was incredibly grateful. And it, it was it's the kind of story that you get all over the place when you have a, a major disaster like that. Um, and we were thrilled to help help this woman have her little girl have a normalized experience after you know. Uh, sleeping in, uh, upstairs in a gutted house. Wow. How about City Park today? Now we're, what, 13 years We later. are. We're, we're 13 years. We actually uh, have the last FEMA project being undertaken in the park, which is the repair of some shelters in the park. Uh, FEMA eventually awarded us $33 million um, towards a total damage that we had of $43 million. And we've rebuilt our amusement park, rebuilt our botanical garden. We've uh, renovated uh, concession facilities and and uh, facilities where we do weddings. We we married 345 couples last year in our park. We had four golf courses. We've rebuilt two and repurposed two others into uh, outdoor recreation. We have the biggest one of the biggest uh, Christmas light shows in the in the in the country in a, in our park. We rebuilt that. And as as I said, our last survey, which we just actually finished in February showed that we had, in 2017, 15 million visits to our park. 15 million visits. That's a lot of visits. And so we are, we're just extremely happy for, with all the help that we've received through all these years and um, that's enabled us uh, to come back and, and be so successful. And again, in spite of the fact we're here at a planning or organization meeting, the plan was so important for us to have uh, to jumpstart our our recovery, that uh, it, it's hard to put a value uh, on it. And so, uh, little did any of us know who were doing the plan that you know it would be followed in a, in a few months by by a major disaster. But it, it was very fortunate for us that we finished the plan prior to the storm and had a blueprint for what we wanted to do. Because yeah, in my opinion. Um it doesn't have to rise to the level of a major disaster. You could have an employer, a large employer, leave town unexpectedly or a major change in uh, property ownership. And if communities aren't prepared for that, you're already behind the ball. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, our park is a very old park. It was uh, first property for this park was uh, acquired in 1854. So it's actually older than Central Park as well. Uh, and there were a lot of things in the in in, in the park that uh, we wanted to change. Change is hard for uh, for many people, um, but we had all those discussions prior to the disaster. You know, we had all those community engagement, all those meetings, all those public meetings, all those uh, debates about should the tennis courts be over here or should they be over here, and you know, should we have two sports stadiums or one, and how many golf courses should we have, and all those things that went into the plan. We'd had those discussions. So when the disaster hit and we were now 
implementing the plan, uh, you know, we, we didn't have to go through all that, that we'd already had all those, all those debates and, and discussions. So we just went ahead with it, with our plan and virtually everybody said, yeah, I, I know why you did this because we, you know, we'd already gone through that discussion. So you've been in New Orleans a long time, but you're not originally from here, right? No, uh, I'm actually from Buffalo, New York, uh, originally, and then went to planning school at the University of Iowa, and then uh, came to New Orleans to work in the planning department in uh, the early 70s and became planning director. I was planning director in New Orleans for seven years here. And from there, I moved to a a different park in the city, Audubon Park, I managed the zoo in in, uh, in, in Audubon Park uh, for a number of years. And then, as I mentioned, City Park, the, our large re- regional park, uh, asked me to come over to, to try to help lead a resurgence because it had been through uh, a long, difficult time, didn't get very much funding. 1,300 acres is a lot of space to take care of. Um, and when you don't have uh, any real support from the government uh, or, or the people through the government, um, you fall into disrepair, and the park had received its last major investment during the WPA. So it it needed a lot of help, but I think part of the reason I was brought over was because I was a planner and because they, the board, our board recognized that it, we needed a roadmap. We just couldn't run around doing things. We needed a roadmap and a priority set of improvements and all that, and that's what the plan did. So you're daughter, if I have this right, is either a planner or at least went to planning school. She is a planner. She went to the University of Illinois at Chicago, where she met her husband. He's He's a planner. planner Yes, he's he's a planner. And his father is a planner. And his father's a planner. So Thanksgiving must be... It's uh, pretty boring for the rest (laughs) of the family. I can guarantee you that. But they live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And my daughter runs an organization that uh, coordinates programs and, and distributes federal grants focusing on the homeless. So she, uh, she runs this program in Washita County, where's, where Ann Arbor is, and her husband, Ben, is the partner and co-owner of a private planning firm. Excellent. Well, I, I don't know of another planning dynasty like that, but I bet <laughs> if there is one, you guys have met them. I noticed that you pursued a PhD sort of late in your career. I was wondering uh, how you came to that decision and what that experience was like. Well, I had um, taught planning classes at the University of New Orleans since the mid-80s when I was planning director. And um, in the mid-90s, a large uh, international company that was based in New Orleans called Freeport McMoran asked the university and the planning program in the university to help it organized the development of a new community that it, that the company was building on the island of New Guinea. Uh, the company is a, a copper and silver and gold extraction company. And to support their activities, they were building an entirely new town on the island of New Guinea. And so they asked the planning department to come and help them uh, figure out uh, not only sort of the physical design of the of the new town, but maybe as important as that, a kind of governance structure and a planning structure for New Guinea, which is actually, you know, subject to the the country of Indonesia's control. So during that time, um, I was asked to be a part of a team that went over to New Guinea. We eventually went over three times in the course of the 90s and early 2000 and worked on a new town over there. It's called Kuala Kanchana. Um, in the lowlands of, of New Guinea, in the mine 
Freeport's mine is in the, in the highlands of New Guinea. Anyway, in the process of, of doing that, I had gathered lots of information, just information that we were using to help, uh, help Freeport figure out how to manage and operate this, this town. So I had all this information. And one day, the dean of the planning school said, well, you, you know, you have, you have about three quarters of the dissertation already done here. Maybe you should go to school and, fin- and do classwork, and then you'll be good. So I started in, in uh, 1999, you know, go to work, then go to university, take classes. And it took me six years to take, get all the Ph.D. classes. Uh, and then I had um, written about half of my dissertation when the hurricane hit. But uh, fortunately for me, uh, I had all my research material on the upper floors of our house because the lower floors of our house all flooded <clears throat> and um, we lost everything in the, in the lower floors. But all of my research material and books and all were all on the upper floors. Wow. So I was able to um, finish my dissertation in 2006. So that must have been quite an experience. I'm curious uh, what the town is like now. Is it... Did it live and die with the company, or you know? I, well, they're they're still there. They they, they have the largest copper mine in the world is in uh, the highlands of of New Guinea. So I'm I have not been back um, in a number of years. Um, so I'm sure it's still there, and uh, it's a very interesting experiment in inculcating the indigenous cultures in Indonesia, which. Um, many cases are closely, more closely aligned to Australian Aborigines than they are with with Indonesia, with the mothering country, which is, you know, basically they're Javanese. And so they're, they're two completely different kinds of culture trying to exist on this island in support of an American company digging copper. So I'd, I'd love to go back one, uh, one day if it wasn't for the 32-hour plane ride that it takes to... <laughs> takes to get to this really remote part of the world. Um, but I, I'd certainly like to go back one day and see how they're doing. Well, I'm glad I asked about the PhD. I had no idea that it was such an interesting story and that it, someone just said, hey, this is something you should do, and yeah. you did it. Yeah, it was uh, an experience. But it, it, again, you know, timing, luck plays a large role in everyone's life. And it was just fortunate that I had finished all the classwork and had most of the dissertation written and that it was upstairs in a house that was flooded um, that saved all my notes and all my research material. Otherwise, I, I, I'm not sure I could have finished because it was so overwhelming to deal with the park, uh, deal with our house that was half ruined. I, I don't know that I, I, I could have recreated it. So, you know, luck plays a role sometimes. Well, New Orleans is uh, one of my favorite cities, certainly in the country, if not the world. I'm wondering, it sounds like you've traveled a bit, and if you have any favorite cities. Well, um, I, you know, I've lived in the Midwest a little bit on the East Coast, um, and, and, but I love Chicago. I mean, I just love Chicago. I, I, I think it's just a, a fantastic place, and I've had three children live in Chicago that I've had a chance to visit with them what, during the times that they were there, so... I, I really love Chicago, and actually, I really love my hometown of Buffalo, New York, because they're a, a gritty, a gritty group. And, you know, they they've been through a lot there, and uh, you know, they fought back. They've invested in their downtown and invested in livability in some of their historic n- neighborhoods. And uh, I don't get to go back to Buffalo very often, but uh, but when I do, I, I really enjoy visiting there and. 
uh, and being there. And uh, I'm a big fan of Baltimore, too. I worked in Baltimore for a little bit during graduate school and um, was there at the beginning of their Inner Harbor Renaissance. And it's uh, great to see how far they, they, they have come as well. So something I like to ask all my guests is a pair of questions. The first is, what do you feel like the planning field is really getting right? Something you're sort of inspired by or proud of that's that's happened recently? Well, I think the emphasis on on place-based planning, I think, is something that the, that the field has really uh, focused on. And uh, I think that has uh, been a great influence in the, in the influx of people back into the center city and um, offset to some degree the you know, migration out of the city that, you know, that we saw for so, for so many years. And I, so I think planners early on saw the importance of making uh, places great that people wanted to be at. And since uh, we live in a, t- at a time where so many people can earn a living and they're not attached to their place. They can earn a living in many different ways, in many different places. Um, so to create, to have your town or city be successful, you have to have places where people want to be because they have choices and they don't have to, they don't have to be there. They can have, they can have their career remotely. Uh, so I think that is, you know, to me that is really, I think, a super important part of, of I think, what planners have done. And then, uh, I, you know, I generally think that, the focus on making sure everyone in a community benefits from from the the community's rise, and that it's just not those privileged few who can who can benefit, but that everybody has an opportunity to benefit. I think planners were early advocates of that, and uh, I, I think we can all be be proud of that. So the other half of this question is: Where do you think there's still room for improvement? Well, I, I have a, a different take on that than I think many people do. I, I tend to think that planning has gone so far in the direction of asking people what they want that it has in some ways lost sight of the fact that it's part of our job to tell them what they should have or can have. And so if you just ask people what they want, and all you do is survey them and say, do you want this, do you want that, do you want this, do you want that? And then we try to give them that. I think it is, it doesn't give proper recognition to our role as, as professionals who presumably have a wider range of experience perhaps than many people uh, in, in a city. And it takes a little bit away of, of why are we doing what we're doing? If all we're doing is surveying people to tell them what, and, and find out what they say they want and we give them what they want, it seems to me that we are missing the opportunity to get them excited about and get them an understanding about what they could have and what other places have and, and what is great about other places and the fact that those kinds of things could be in your city and you could benefit from them. So I, I think it's, it's important for planning uh, and planners to recognize it's just not about reacting to people. You have a responsibility to help them understand that there are things that perhaps they don't even realize and don't know that would be beneficial and help, helpful to them and they would enjoy. And therefore, I think it's important that you, know, you come out and, and, and to tell people, well, you may say you want this, 
but for the long-term benefit of your community, that's really not what you should be concentrating on. And this is what you should be concentrating on. And I, I think that's important from our role as, as professionals. Food for thought. Bob, I want to thank you for your time today, sharing your stories and insights. I really appreciated it and learned a lot. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming to New Orleans. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.